I have always not really liked my own voice. I've never like been a guy that listens to my own music and goes, "Oh God, I sound so good." Like I've always, <laughs> I love, I love making music, but I've never thought, "Oh, I sound so." Like I've just, I'm like, I go sing the song. Most successful musicians start at a very young age, sometimes as early as four or five years old, and their journey to success, in most cases, comes with overcoming many obstacles and setbacks along the way. But these setbacks can actually be huge gifts or opportunities to learn and grow and become very successful. Winston Churchill, one of my heroes, said, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity, where the optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Jake Owen, my buddy, my friend, is definitely an optimist, and his story is very unique. Most people know him as a super successful country artist, but he didn't even touch a guitar or play music in a live setting until he was in college. Now, in the music business, that's considered really late. I mean, that's miles from someone starting at age five or eight or even 10 years old. When he was a kid, he was a super athlete focusing mostly on becoming a pro golfer until he blew his shoulder out in a wakeboard accident in his freshman year in college. His shoulder injury ended his dream of becoming a pro golfer. But while he was recovering from his surgery, he borrowed a neighbor's guitar and started teaching himself how to play. The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. But it gets better. After seeing a guitarist perform at a campus bar, he asked the bar's owner if he could play a gig there. Eventually, he became a regular at the bar and soon took up writing his own material. So let's fast forward five or six years later. Jake eventually got signed to RCA Records Nashville and became a multi-talented, nominated country artist who has been releasing studio albums since 2006. He had 10 number one hit singles, starting with his iconic first hit, Barefoot Blue Jean Night. His career rocketed into stardom while touring and or collaborating with the likes of Kenny Chesney, Brad Paisley, Keith Urban, Kid Rock, Lil Nas X, and Chris Stapleton, just to name a few. Now, presently, Jake has a new record called Loose Cannon featuring his single On the Boat Again, and he will finish his cross-country tour at the end of October, promoting his album and performing with accompanying acts Tyler Booth and Dave Highway. Jake, you're always so positive and happy. I always think of Jake Owen as the happy-to-be-alive guy. I mean, I remember when I first met you and your mom in 2006 when we were making your first record in Nashville. And you and your mom were so cool and so positive. And you came in the room and you were like, you lit up the whole room, both you and your mom. I mean, have you always been that guy? Were you born that way? Or did you get that from your mom? I mean, what's the deal? Uh, well, I definitely remember that. Like it was, I mean, it, it seems like it was yesterday, although it was uh, quite some time ago, but yeah, I've always just enjoyed life. I think uh, it's funny to hear you say the happy to be alive guy. I've never really thought of it that way, but I have a lot to be grateful for. I, I mean, I have an awesome family and mom and dad and, and like yourself, a twin brother. Ooh, you know that. Yes. Growing up with a twin and somebody to always feed off of and then having a mom and dad that were supportive of, of us. And yeah, I, I am grateful and happy to be alive for sure. You know what? You and I had a very similar upbringing in that regard. Because I, I definitely think having a twin, oh my God, I mean, your whole life you have 
your best friend, you know? And you and your twin played, he played sports too, right? Oh yeah, Jared had a full tennis scholarship to uh, Florida State and he was a great athlete. He was, he was a great basketball player growing up. And uh, I think having somebody that's your, you know, significant other exact same age is somebody that gives you, it kind of makes you step your game up a little bit because you're always competitive with one another. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> I grew up in Western Mass and, you know, so long ago there was no cable. So I'd kick the ball up to my brother. He'd be Green Bay. I'd be the Bears and it'd be just the two of us. I'd kick, <laughs> I'd kick off to him and then we'd come running at each other. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, you know, we're identical. So we played soccer and lacrosse together. And we had long hair in soccer. I played behind him. I was a halfback. He was a, a lineman. I mean, we confused people all the time. I go, God, there's two of these guys. But <laughs> there was always that, you know, camaraderie. And I had a very supportive mother, too. I mean, the family, the kids were everything. So, God, I think that makes you have confidence. You don't have to think about someone's always loving you. Someone always cares about you. It helps. I mean, it, it just helps. Yeah. And I love what you said, too, even starting off in the intro that finding the positive in sometimes challenging situations has always uh, been something that I've tried to do. I remember when I left college, my twin brother was there and I told him I was going to leave and, and go to Nashville and try to make it. He's like, man, are you crazy? And I dropped out of college and my mom that you met, I remember calling her and my dad and they thought, you know, what are you thinking? My dad was hardcore on me. Like, no, you're going to finish college. Cause that's wow. And yeah, but he also was a father and he said, go ahead. If you have that much conviction and you want to do this, I support you from a father's standpoint, but I'm not going to support you financially. And I think in that moment of going, oh man, I'm jumping into the deep end here. I'm going to swim or sink, right? And it gave me all that growing up. My parents that I mentioned and my brother that always pushed me to work a little harder. felt like I had this thing within me where I was like, I can do this. And whether or not it worked out or not, I always try to see the positive side of what could be as opposed to what couldn't. Like Thinking about the negative always brings me down. So I try to think about what's next all the time. Dude, I could totally read relate to what you're saying. I don't even use the word mistake or failure in my vocabulary because I saw somebody completely fall apart. Very, very successful person. He asked me a question, then he completely, completely his body language. He imploded when he said, yeah, I've made some big mistakes and had some failures. And I was like, so blown away by it. I slugged him in the arm. I said, no, you haven't. Those are just events that get you where you're going. But my point is, saying negative things or thinking negative things really do bring you down. It changes your whole energy. So I agree with you. And, and I mean, I think that you, I mean, I think you are gifted with some sort of connection with positive energy because you always, always are positive And you, instead of spinning something negative, you try, you try to spin it positive. And I think that that will help you succeed in anything, anything, your relationship. With your kids, your wife, uh, your fans, your band, with yourself, you know, it's just a better way to go. I agree. And I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I'm a human being as well. Uh, and so I'm not always like that. And I've learned, I've learned from the times where I'm not positive. And I, I've always said too that positivity attracts positivity and negativity attracts negativity. I'd rather, like, again, live on the positive side because I've watched the times where I've you know, let myself slip a little bit or let tough times get to you. And then 
as a leader too and out here with my band and crew and people like they expect you like to be the happy guy and and if you can maintain that most of the time most people around you will be the same way you know so i try to try to do that do you feel the pressure because you're the guy you're the team leader you're the coach you're the boss do you feel that pressure or is that a, just a natural role for you to be the team leader you know the motivator the guy that everybody looks to I mean, you're feeling it. I mean, when you're the lead singer, you're on up front. You know, I think in my career, I've always had this thing where I've walked this line of being careful of giving off. Like, I genuinely don't have fears from a standpoint of failure, because like you said, I've always just thought that it could happen. And if you think that way, then most things are positive. If it doesn't happen, well, then that's what most people expected anyway. So you didn't really fail. You just kind of like it didn't work out. But I've never really thought like that. And, and my point is, is that I think when you think like that, I've always ridden the line of sometimes people taking confidence as arrogance. My parents raised me not to ever be that way, but my dad definitely raised me to be confident. And so when you say, do I like being the leader? I don't think so. I, I'm, I didn't set out to be so-called a leader, but knowing that that's my role, I know the responsibility that comes with that. And so in order to be that person, not only to my band and crew, but I'm a father of two girls, you know, to be a leader in my family and to be someone that people know they can count on is what's important to me. And I have to hold my own self to that standard, too, because as much as somebody can look you in the face and tell you that they're that kind of person, no one's just born that way. You have to commit to those types of rituals of being being there for yourself just as much as if you're not there for yourself, you can't be there for other people either. So. Uh, I try to try to maintain that role. I totally agree. It really does start with the relationship between you and you. I mean, if you think about it, you're the adult, but there's still that kid in you. You have a choice. I try to reject any negative thought I have. You're never going to stop having those thoughts. Right. But right. It, I, I make a commitment to go, oh, instead of feeling this way, I choose to pivot to the positive way because I know, God, you get so much more value. You're going to be a better everything if you're going down the positive path as opposed to the negative path. And there was a study that somebody did and told me about when, when you think negative, you can actually develop a muscle in your brain or something in your brain that gets bigger. Or if you're positive, you can develop that. And they see it in a CAT scan. They can see it. So I reject the negative. I'm not going to ever get rid of negative thoughts. You wake up sometimes in a, in a shit mood, you know. But I, when I go like, I make the choice, oh, I'm having that kind of day, I still am going to choose to be positive. And so if you can do that with you, you can do it with your kids, you can do it with your fans, you can do it with the band. It's your choice. If you don't mind, I'll share something with you that I learned last year that I thought was really interesting from a lady that I was chatting with, being a musician on the road, as you know, getting sleep and just trying to maintain health and things like that can be challenging. And so I wanted to learn how to be better about it. And I went to Mayo Clinic um, up yeah. in Manchester, Minnesota. It was an amazing place. They saved my dad's life. My dad had cancer, throat cancer, and, and they saved his life. And I just thought, you know, he learned so much there. I'm going to go there and I want to talk to some of their specialists about what my life is and how I can sense when I get overworked and anxiety. Like, how do I just maintain it? How do I stay the guy that you're saying that people maybe perceive me to be? And the lady said something to me that I thought was really interesting because as much as I, I have positivity, I'm, I'm very skeptical of, of things that people say. And I, I, I've always been an overanalyzer. 
So I asked her, this lady that was giving me lots of tips on how to maintain positivity. And I said, well, do you have it figured out because of this profession that you have, like, and you have a degree? Are you perfect all the time? Do you have this figured out? And she said, no, I don't. I have to practice every day. It's no different. And I tell you this because she said, it's like Tiger Woods, right? Like he still has a guy, a coach he goes to. He's the greatest golfer, you know, of all time. Yeah. Um, but he still has, he works on it every day. He doesn't just wake up and, and expect to have it all the time. And so she said, I woke up the other morning and I had a bad day. I knew, but I, I had to go and talk to people like you and I couldn't let them know I was having a bad day because they come to me to tell them how to not do it. <laughs> she said, so I had to get myself in that mode. Way long story short, she went to grab a coffee as she usually did that morning. She said the guy behind the counter, she could tell wasn't in a good mood. She said, how are you doing? Try to create small talk. He had wanted nothing of the small talk. He just wanted her money and asked her what she wanted. But she went overboard and she said at the end of it, she bought a $20 gift card and she handed it back to him. And she said, hey, today I want when people come behind me, whoever you deem you want to do it for, buy them a coffee with this gift card. And all of a sudden she said his demeanor changed like, wow, like that's really nice of you to do something like that for someone else. Thanks. Like, I'll do that. And you could just tell it changed his day. Well, she said she fast forwarded 20, 30 minutes later, she was getting in the elevator at the hospital and a lady was like, wait, 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 wait. And she held the door for her. She's like, whoa, it's been a heck of a morning. But she's like, I just went to get a coffee. I got a free coffee from this. And it just all <laughs> came back around full circle because she said she put some positivity into the world because of it. It changed his day. He then happened to maybe give that woman and and she just said it all clicked that you can do little things in life mm -hmm. to turn the positivity switch on and wow how much it can change and start seeping into other people's lives and i think it all comes back to you anyway that was a long little recap but i think i love stories like that dude that's incredible thanks for sharing that i've thought of going to the mayo clinic because i'm mr health i have the healthy life is a wealthy life and I have eight steps. I won't get into it now, but I have actual eight steps, like the eight commandments for Kenny Aronoff. And I just do the best I can every day. But I've always thought I get a physical every year and do executive blood work because blood work tells everything. If I'm a little bit low in this, my doctor says, oh, take these supplements, do this, stop doing that, do this, do that. But you can get a killer physical at the Mayo Clinic. Oh, yeah. Keep you for, for two days. Did you do that? Yeah, I was there for oh, days. Dude, I got to try that. It's amazing, isn't it? It was great because you did. I did everything from sleep tests to just full body stuff. And uh, you really leave there with a feeling of understanding of, of where you are with your health and your life. And I think that's great for anyone to know. I also just got to really give it up to the people there at that clinic and that hospital. They're so attentive to your needs and kind. And I was super grateful for them there. And I feel great. I look forward to doing that. I really, I've always been into health. And so I'm going to do it. So thanks for telling me about that. Because now you motivated me to do that. You know, so this golf thing, you know, for me, I felt like the discipline that I learned from having coaches when I was like in high school or even younger, making me, you know, there was no hand, hand holding. There was no coddling. It was like old school coaches drilling us. Just working out, you know, when they tell you to do eight laps, I do 12 laps, that type of thing. Those skills that I learned in sports, oh, man, they really helped me in everything I do. For example, by the time I graduated high school and I decided, like you did at one point, oh, my God, music is my life. 
everybody around me was like, are you kidding me? Because it's no sure. Not like going to law school or med school or business school. You get out of college and you got a job. Music is like, what? And I was going to college to study music, classical music, believe it or not. And I started practicing eight hours a day, seven days a week, disciplined. Now, where did I get that from? And I feel like I got that. A lot of that was from sports. I was used to the regiment and the routine and dealing with adversity. I mean, do you feel like, uh, you know, what you learned in sports helped you in music? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. And I think just the fact that you understand that in sports, you're not going to be great at it or you're never going to be better if you don't put the effort in to be better. The minute that you stop doing that is the minute that you stop getting better. And I think that in life, whether it's yourself, whether it's a sport, whether it's the craft you're working on, it's up to you, especially if we have the help, as you mentioned, to do it, uh, to continue to work on yourself and your craft and you'll always be better. But it definitely stems from, I think, and I've got a lot of friends in this business, too, that were athletes at a younger age, and they've all attested to the fact that that type of work ethic is what is ingrained in them from sports, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you t- I have a thing called RPS. It's the repetition of any skill is P, the preparation for success. So Tiger Woods, how many chip shots does he do a day? What's that golfer? He's really famous. He won uh, the PGA tournament, uh, I mean, I don't know, three times. And they asked him, how do you do that? Oh, well, I do two hours of chip shots a day, two hours of drives, and two hours of putting. And then they said, yeah, but how did you win this tournament? I said, two hours of chip shots, two hours of drive, <laughs> two hours of putting. It's like it doesn't matter. It's the same formula. It's like you don't win the PGA tournament or the Masters and then, oh, I'm done for the rest of my life. Tiger Woods, whatever amazing athlete, pitcher, quarterback, anybody, drumming, writing songs, anything you do, it's the repetition of that skill that makes you great. And you can't set it and forget it. Right. That's a good point. You can't set it and forget it. If you don't do that thing you want to be great at today, tomorrow you'll be a little less. And the next day, look, because we're humans. We're not robots. So, yeah. Anyway, I wonder, let me know what you think about this. I felt like you learn from sports, self-discipline, self-discipline. Nobody told me to practice eight hours a day. I told them. Uh, Hard work, self-discipline, and perseverance. But I feel that that's fuel. The fuel that makes you do that is the love for what you do. Like, in your case, songwriter, singer. For you to leave Florida to go to Nashville meant you really wanted to do this. And the fact that your dad thought you were crazy and your mom thought you were crazy and your brother thought, like, what are you doing, was perfect setup for you to realize, are you really committed to do this? And you were like, yes, I am. And you did it. If you said no and they convinced you, then you weren't ready to do it. Right. I think I'm even that way now. You know, I was 20. 23 at the time when I moved to Nashville and I'm 42 now. So uh, almost 20 years later, but I still feel that way a lot. A lot of guys laugh at me that I work with because of how spontaneous that I am. But I think in order to be spontaneous and have spontaneity, you have to believe that the positive is on the other side of your decision, right? And as you mentioned, if you worry about the outcome not being what you dream of, then you're probably not ready to make that spur of the moment decision. And I do think that's that what I said earlier about kind of walking that line of confidence and arrogance that falls in there is like, you just kind of have to be confident enough that you can just take the jump. 
Yeah, it's not up here. It's in here. It's your heart. You're making decisions. The cool thing is now you know, oh, when I was spontaneous the last five times, ah, I did get where I wanted to go. You got to work hard at it. But those feelings are real. And you now know that you can get to the end, the touchdown. You can win the Super Bowl when, you know, you follow your heart. Our buddy that uh, introduced me to you, that Jimmy Ritchie is my first album. I gave him a plaque years ago. I mean, going back to almost those years when we made those albums, because growing up in Florida, I loved to surf and, and be on the water. And there was this quote that I found that I had that was like etched into this piece of metal that he put on his wall as a piece of art that says, according to this theory, dot, 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 the best laid plans of mice and men are indifferent to the universe. So if each person would approach each day the way that a surfer approaches each individual wave that comes along, said that your needs will be eventually satisfied. And I always loved that because as a surfer and having a surfer mentality, every wave you ride is going to be different. And you have to just appreciate it for the ride that you get out of that wave. And just know that at the end of the wave, you can paddle right back out and try to catch the next one. And I think that for me now, 20 years later from the 23-year-old kid that you met all those years ago, I've had a lot of awesome rides on a lot of awesome waves. Some waves haven't been as exhilarating as other ones, but damn, I think getting back to what you just said a minute ago, like I just am always looking forward to the next ride, like because who knows what that can be. And I, I love the feeling that that you don't know as well. That that's exciting to me. The unknown is is way more exciting to me than knowing what is right, dude. You're, that's what a gift because uh, that's a very open mind. Because a lot of people, if you're trying to control your environment completely, and you're not going to even see the unknown, I think you get more value out of life when you're open like you are. But I mean, what do you? I mean, you live in Nashville. How, there's no waves there. <laughs> <laughs> No, there's not. I, I have to find um, I find ways to to kind of open my mind up, I guess, elsewhere. I get back to Florida for sure. But yeah, I, I kind of try to live live that way, I think. It's a great philosophy. All right. So now we're talking about that first record. And I was listening to those first two records last night and I was going, oh, my God, man, those were like, I mean, you're a country artist, but those records have a huge rock energy. Drums are loud, guitars are loud, your vocals are loud. It's not like your vocals up here and everything's mixed away in the back. I mean, those were rock, kick-ass records with a big country influence, but there was a lot of rock in there. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, thanks to you, man. Oh, what that? <laughs> You're oh, banging dude. them. Oh, dude, uh, I was, dude, I can hear my energy. There is no question. But they mixed the drums real loud. Was that? I mean, Jimmy obviously wanted, he had that vision. But you obviously love that vision. Yeah, I came in to Nashville and getting a record deal in a really interesting time. You know, speaking of waves, what we just were. When I got my record deal, you know, Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn were the first couple of people I went on tour with. And I was like the new kid at the record label that was making this like rocking country music kind of sound at a time where I was going on tour with Alan Jackson, who's pretty traditional, and Brooks and Dunn was the middle ground between that still traditional and country, but had like a very nice rock and feel. And so I was always trying to find my groove of what it is I was. And I think that's okay for artists coming in to kind of be figuring out what they are and where their place is. But you're right. Those first couple of albums, 
were definitely pieces of me being from Florida, Leonard Skinner. I love Leonard Skinner, Southern rock. So there was a lot of that. And then there was a lot of me also trying to fit into what was a country song at the time, you know, because you can't just come out of nowhere. And so I, I, l- I look back at those albums. I listen to myself singing. I listen to kind of who I was or who I was hoping to be. It's always kind of nice to reminisce and go back and listen to that. Dude, that was, I'm so busy. I never go back and listen to anything I did. But when I listened to them last night, I was like, and then I f- didn't realize I was doing some reading and I, you wrote Eight Second Ride when you were in this cover band called <laughs> Ye- Yeehaw Junction before you were anybody. And that song, I recorded that song, and it was your first gold-selling single, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, That's it crazy. is kind of wild and crazy. That's crazy. The song, it's, the song itself is, like, lyrically and artistically isn't really anything. I was an 18-year-old kid just writing songs. I remember trying to write songs for the kids in college that wanted to hear that kind of stuff. And I, uh, But, yeah, it's weird how songs can just, when they connect, they connect. And, and yeah. people like them, they like them. And that song, even all these years later, I played every night in my show, and people love it, and they ask <laughs> for it. And even though you can grow, grow older and more mature as a person and an artist, like your songs grow with you. And I've always loved that about music, too. It can take you back to those, those times. Some artists, they go, I ain't playing that song. I wrote that 50 years ago. It's embarrassing. But if it's a hit, people want to still hear it because it's like the soundtrack of their life, you know? Check this out. So I was doing a a John Fogarty album, and he was doing duets. And one of the duets was Keith Urban, who I've known for a long time. Keith came up to me, and he told me a story that blew my mind. He said, Mellencamp was really big in Australia. And we I think we did... Seven sold out shows at the entertainment center, four one day, a day off, and then three the next the next three days. And he said he was in Australia and he had a country band or he playing country in cl- clubs, country music, and he'd go and play in the rock clubs. And everybody was telling him, nah, you should be a country artist. Nah, you should be a rock artist. And he was so frustrated when he saw us and we had the fiddle and the accordion. He suddenly went, wait a minute, John Mellencamp's doing whatever the effing he wants to do. And it's yeah. kind of got a little of the Americana and the rock. He went, oh, I'm just going to be me. And he shared that. He sat right in front of me. He said, man, we sat. I brought my band to the show. And he said, look at this. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do our version. Look what Mellencamp's doing. He's just doing his thing. I thought that was so cool. Not that it was our band, but that he figured out who he was going to be and went after it and became, and, you know, he's rocking and country. That's what made me think about it. Yeah, he is. I, I was fortunate, as you mentioned to, earlier, I was fortunate to spend a whole summer with him out on the road, two of us on tour one year. Oh, man. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from him. I bet you did. I bet you. Oh, my God. Between you and him, it was probably the whole audience was chicks. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of chicks. That, there was a lot of chicks for sure. But I know. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was already married to Nicole by then. So, you know, we were. And I think yeah, I, I was married at the time. Doesn't matter. They still come out. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hey, they were there. Yeah, that's incredible. I get this feeling that everything you set your mind to, and if it's coming from a place of passion, you will be successful. And you must know that. If it's something you believe in, something you love, you know you will eventually reach your goal or you'll be on the journey to reach your goal. Am I right? Yeah, you are right. I, I've always, again, I think that goes back to that weird feeling of not wanting to be 
or feel arrogant about it. But like, I think if you just believe that things will happen, I can assure you one thing, I'm not a genius, but I know that by believing you have way better chances than not believing. And when I relate this to golf, right? I was a golfer growing up. Golf is a very interesting sport where unlike other sports, where it's one of the few where you're literally just playing against yourself. You don't have, I mean, yes, you can play against someone else's score, but I could go out to the golf course by myself and drop a ball and play an entire round of golf by myself. And by playing that round of golf by myself, I have to keep my own score. Okay. Which means that I have to be honest with myself and to the rules of golf and all. And so it's really, it, it really maintains this honesty of who you are, the dedication to the sport and life. Like golf is a lot like life where you're going to hit bad shots. You're going to hit some really good ones and you just have to enjoy the so-called game or the journey that you're playing. And there's a lot of confidence that comes with the game as well. So if you're having a shot that you have to hit across 200 yards of water, the majority of people are going to look at that shot and they're going to think to themselves, I don't want to hit it in the water, but my demeanor and the type of person I am my entire life has been, I'm fucking going for that green. Fuck that water. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause when I hit it across the water, everyone that's in this group with me and all my buddies that told me that I couldn't do it, I'm going to just laugh at them and they're going to be like, he damn sure did. And I don't know. I've just, I've never been the guy that's worried about hitting it in the water. And I guess, in a way it gets back to what you're saying about life. Like I'm not worried to hit it in the water in life because I'll just get out and swim to the edge and I'll just try to hit it over the water again. At the end of the day, I saw some of, one of my buddies told me this the other day. It's like, no one talks about this and this is very blunt, but like, we're all going to die one day. We were here for a matter of time and then we're going to all pass on. And when we do, life will continue to go. So None of this really matters. Like it, what matters is, is that you, what matters is, is that you just live it and do it to the best that you can. And that when you go, people say that guy was cool. He was a good person. He always did what he wanted to. And he did it with a lot of passion. And then the legacy you leave behind to the kind of person you are, I think is a big deal, but I've tried to live my life like that for sure. Dude, that's so awesome. Usually I'd say, okay, we're done, but we got more to talk about. But that is like, that'd be such a perfect ending because that is the biggest message you could say to anybody. Just live your life to your fullest. And take chances, man. You know, like take those chances. Like it's so easy and everybody's always going to tell you that you can't do something because, you know, you got to play safe a little bit. But I've just always enjoyed saying, well, what if, you know, the what if is the excitement for me. Well, the thing now is that you know, you now know, and that's what I was talking about, is you now know you can because you have. You have. You followed your dream and you succeeded. You followed your dream and you succeeded. You're going like, well, there is no, I can't. It's like, do I want to? That's incredible. All right. So when you started learning guitar, who were your guitar heroes? Who are you trying to be? Yeah, believe it or not, when I was in college, you know, in 2000 and, uh, well, I, I grew, it was 2000 to about 2005. So I was a huge John Mayer fan. I just actually went and saw him the other night play by himself here in Nashville, acoustic, just him solo. And it reminded me, obviously, never on the level of talent he is. But I just saw myself up there going like, that's the most free feeling thing you could do is get on stage by yourself with an instrument and entertain a crowd. And I did that in college. So for as far as a guitar hero, as you would say, I just learned a lot from him because he was a great guitar player and playing in college by myself. I had to, in order to play his songs or stuff like it, I had to learn to be a better guitar player. So he encouraged me a lot to do that. 
from afar, not personally, just like being a fan. But then again, too, like my dad loves Stevie Ray Vaughan. And then, as I mentioned, being from Florida, you know, Leonard Skinner and Tom Petty and that type of like rock and riff based songs are really what made me go like, I want to do that. I want to, I want those types of songs. I got to record Leonard Skinner's record at the Oceanway Studio, the church in Nashville. And then they asked me to go on tour, but I was still with, I think I was still with Mellencamp or I was with somebody, Melissa Etheridge maybe. But yeah, that, talk about a vibe. They're like the Rolling Stones of the South. I mean, these guys, I mean. <laughs> You're right. I mean, it was I like, I mean, it was like I walked into their world and it was like, and it was real. It oh, yeah. was real. I mean, it was, oh, dude. I wanted to go on the road with them. I just thought they were the coolest man. And those guitar players, it was amazing. So what about in the singing thing? Were you going after a certain vocal? No, I I, I still, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I saw an interview a long time ago of Kenny Rogers talking about his own voice. And I think it was like Larry King Live or something. Mm -hmm. And Larry King had told Kenny, he said, what does it feel like to have everybody like just love your voice? You know, you're Kenny Rogers. And he said, I've always hated my voice. And it made me feel good when he said that, because I have always not really liked my own voice. I've never like been a guy that listens to my own music and goes, oh, God, I sound so good. Like, I've always been like, <laughs> I love I love making music, but I've never thought, oh, I sound so like I just I'm like, I go sing the song. And so the people that I enjoy listening to, though, where when I was growing up, like country music wise, like I loved like Randy Travis and Keith Whitley and guys with a baritone voice. I had a low voice growing up. So I loved that low tone and Johnny Cash and stuff like that. So Conway Twitty, Conway. Twitty. Yeah. Yeah. Conway Twitty. And I just loved that those, anybody that had a deep, even like Eddie Arnold was like a very big staple in Nashville and of classic, classic tunes. And so Merle Haggard, obviously Waylon Jennings, like guys that had like a, a man's voice. I really, <laughs> I wanted that. So I guess that's where it stems from. That's great. Well, I mean, you got a great voice. I mean, it's... Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I listen to myself, uh, you know, when I do these podcasts, I go, oh, my God, I sound like a chipmunk on crack or something. You know, can't you get it lower? <laughs> but you, you have a really cool... That's good not to be in love with you. Anything. I have a phrase that goes like this. I'll never be as good as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend my entire life trying to be as good as I can be. I mean, that's just, you know, yeah, I don't mind. I, I don't mind. There are no failures. I'm just trying to get touchdowns. So, you know, I mean, what do you think a guy like Tom Brady, I always talk about Tom Brady, uh, let's say Mahomes, any great quarterback, they're resilient. They don't get a touchdown every time, but they keep trying. They keep trying. Yeah, and I mean, when you think of guys like, Babe Ruth or Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, yeah. and yeah. these guys that, that have led home runs. Like nobody talks about how many times they struck out. Like, but you know they struck out a lot. Like yeah. when I tell people, I tell people that a lot about my career is that like there's been many times. Well, let's let's call it songs you put out on the radio, whatever. Like they don't work. Like sometimes they're huge home runs, you knock them out of the park, and then sometimes like they they're not. But it's okay because you're still in the game and you're still like you're still playing. And I've always thought that that's kind of cool that no matter like what happens, you can still always step up to the plate and try to knock it out of the park. Like whether you knock it out or not, you might strike out trying, but at least you were swinging for the fences. And that's kind of the way I've always looked at it. That's such a positive 
such a positive attitude. That's the difference. It's like you didn't see the water. You just see where you want the ball to go. You just ignore the water. I see my buddies going nuts when it happens. That's like that's what I see, right? Like <laughs> I see the naysayers being like, shit. He did it. I'm like, well, yeah, I did it. I told you yeah. I was going to do it. Right. Yeah. Like you didn't believe I did. Like, like, yeah. like I like making believers out of non-believers. Like that's another thing for me. That's always been cool. Is like, even in this business now, like uh, I'm here at this office we have in Nashville and it's been a big passion of mine outside of my own artistry to like start this company to where I can see kids I believe in and help them succeed and we've had a few now that i have kind of set off on their their sailing ship and it's so fulfilling not has nothing to do from a monetary standpoint nothing i've ever done is i've I've looked at monetarily i've always looked at it as like self-fulfillment i've been able to, to watch some people do some great things and knowing that it was because of a belief in them and i remember telling someone the other day i've had belief in people when they didn't even believe in themselves and so Dude, it feels that's good. incredible it, ha- it feels good to encourage people to believe more in themselves because of that belief that we've, we keep being redundant about and reiterating is really the f- gasoline to any engine. You have to have the belief. And without it, you're just putzing along like, you know, on fumes. Oh, dude, man, you're talking mind language big time. So, you know, I do, I do motivational, inspirational speaking, and I thought it read something. Will you do some of that? Do you do that? Uh, I don't know. No, I mean, I feel like I've been doing that today here with you, but I, I don't, uh, I don't do it. No, I, like, I, I don't do it just to do it. Okay. I, okay. I mean, I, I think doing stuff like this though, too, just so you know, Kenny is super cool. I'm very grateful you have me on your podcast here, but you know, talking with a friend about this type of stuff is a reminder to yourself. I think probably you would admit just to, the same way you do this is just as much probably for your benefit as it is for mine and any of us that are listening out there that like, we have to remind ourselves of this type of thinking and being positive because otherwise this world can suck you under quick, you know, if you allow it to. Ooh, yeah, I totally agree, dude. And that's why it's important to surround yourself with the type of people that can give you that kind of, you know, energy as opposed to going to the other way. You know, it's like you start to smell like the people you're around. And I'm all about trying to get the most value out of this life we have. What else is there? Like you said, when we're dead and gone, you know, the greatest of the greatest. How many people say Babe Ruth anymore? Less and less every year, you know, but he was the greatest at what he was doing at one point. It's it's just all we can do is just do the best we can. I love that you, what you told me about this, uh, helping people out. And you have, you're involved with all kinds of charities. You have a golf charity, you have a, a bunch of charities, right? And that's, that's helping people. That's incredible. Yeah, we uh, have a Jake. It's called the Jake Owen Foundation, and uh, we do everything from uh, our mission is helping people in the places they call home. And we got there by uh, originally starting with St. Jude Children's Hospital and being a big them being a big beneficiary to what we do. And uh, my hometown each year, we have a golf tournament, a fishing tournament, a concert, and we've had every. We had God bless him. Uh, we had Jimmy Buffett a couple years ago, which was incredible to have him. And then we've just had, we've had, we had Alabama last year, Randy Owen. We've had every, lots of people come through and without their help, I couldn't, couldn't do it, but it's real fulfilling to give back every year. And that seems too for my parents and the way they raised me to always make sure that you give back to people that are less fortunate. And we're very fortunate to be in the position to be able to do that. You're changing lives. You're helping people or they can get from like 
to eight, but they can't get to 10. And you're like giving the other two things to get them to 10. It's really, really, really cool. All right, I'm going to sing something here. Not what you think. And you're going to know why I'm singing this. Boom, blam. So let it rock. Yeah. All right. First of all, anybody, and this ties into your confidence, anybody that would redo a song in the 80s that was one of the biggest hits on the radio at a time when rock and roll was dominating radio, then you do a cover of that song and do it just as good. That's almost impossible. And so you did John Cougar Mellencamp's number one hit single, Jack and Diane, and turned it into your own. And I watched that. It's almost 10 minute long video. It's like a little movie. It's unbelievable. And the way you, you know, for people who don't know, it's Jack and Diane by John Cougar Mellencamp, number one hit single, top 100 billboard. And you turned it into I was Jack, you were Diane. And it's this incredible story. It's a cool story of basically reliving that song and like how we all felt that like we all put ourselves in the position of like, I felt like I was Jack and you that my girl was Diane, right? Like we put our, in any great song, you put yourself in that position. And so I didn't write that song. Actually, some friends of mine pitched it my way. And I will tell you that my first instinct, contrary to everything I've told you, how confident <laughs> I can be, I did think no way yeah, I can do this. Uh, because John Mellencamp will hate this and I would never want to offend him. The more I listened to it, I realized it wasn't about redoing the song. It was about an ode to like that song and John Mellencamp. And uh, how can you get mad at, at someone really honoring what that song meant to the world, really, and, and how we all put ourselves in that position? So anyway, long story short, I did record it and it became an, a number one hit. And uh <laughs> He was he was credited obviously as a songwriter. Yeah, I, on it. I saw it. I saw it. And on my tour bus, I have framed this amazing note card that came in the mail one day at my farm. It came and it just said Mellencamp. He wrote on there. He said, Jake, he said, Thank you for doing this song. He said he was really pleased to know that my fans, you know, related to it. Um, and he said, Thanks for doing it so well. And and he wrote John Mellencamp. I have that framed on my bus and I just I look at it a lot as like a wow moment. I never met him or anything. And I don't know that I need to. I just hope that he did based off that note. He didn't hate me. So, <laughs> so I'm glad that I'm glad that we could bring some light to that song, which has already, you know, been done so many times by so many people. I was grateful to, to be able to do that. You know, that song almost didn't make it on the record. We were young. We were at Criteria Studios. As a matter of fact, Gary Rossington had he, his band, not Leonard Skinner, was in the next room and John and him almost got in a fist fight. Wow. <laughs> it was great. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of whiskey in that room over there. I bet. And, and oh, dude. Oh, man. And John was, you know, we were making American Fool. He was about, he was going through a divorce. He was about to lose his record deal again, which I didn't even know. And he almost died on a motorcycle accident a week before we were going into town in Bloomington, Indiana. He went like, 80 miles an hour with no helmet on his Harley in the dark down a country road past me and the bass player gave us the finger. And next thing you know, we see sparks and the, and a big explosion. I slam on the brakes and we're like, Oh my God, he's dead. And no. what had happened, a dog came out, hit the bike, the bike, went wow. down. John, John got on top of it somehow. And before it hit the tree, he got off the bottom line. He was, he just messed up his leg. I mean, he was the luckiest guy in the world, but wow. 
that was that time he was not in a good mood. Two guys got fired in the band, and I almost got in a fist fight with him. It was just a crazy time. But that song, I walked into a into the studio one day, and the co-producer had this metal box, and I went, Don, what's that? He goes, oh, yeah, the Bee Gees are using it next door. It's a, We're going to try it on this song, Jack and Diane, which we didn't know how to arrange it, you know, to make it so it'd be cool. And I said, well, what's that? He says, that's a Lin One drum machine. I went, what? Those things replace drummers. <laughs> so, so talk about, yeah. So talk about adapt or die. I grabbed the machine, grabbed the manual. I go, well, I'm going to program it. I'm going to be a part of this new technology. And I basically programmed on the machine what I was playing on the drum set. But of course, it sounded different because it was a machine and it was the new kind of thing. And so I hand it to them and I'm thinking, man, am I in the horse and buggy business and the car just showed up and I'm going out? I mean, what's <laughs> going on? You know what I mean? But then I get summoned into the control room and I have to come up with this drum thing. All I kept thinking was like a drum solo on a ballad for the radio. I'm like, I'm excited. I'm going to be on the record, but I'm crapping in my pants. I'm going, all right, you got to save the song to save your career. Save the song. Save your career. All right, what can I play? And I had learned at this point, oh, it's not about me, the individual. It's about we, the band, the song, the serve the song, get the song on the radio. I went, oh, okay. I kind of went from being just some great, talented football player to being Mahomes or Brady, where it's, oh, I need those other 10 guys to get touchdowns. <laughs> you know, I became a team player. So I thought, what can I play? That will sound great coming out of a car stereo speaker and a TV set speaker. That's why I went boom, blam, and stopped. Something simple. Anyway, the song almost That's didn't amazing. Make... Now, check this out. Back then, so I was like, oh, man, it made it on the record. Woo! Hurt So Good went to number two, first release, and I, the Tiger, was number one. We couldn't beat that because right. Rocky, Rocky One was out. So... The record label, they used to play all the, the songs on the on album-oriented radio, and the people would call and go, oh, we like that one. Oh, we like that one. Well, Jack and Diane tested extraordinarily high, which we were shocked at. So the record label went, when the Hurts So Good started to kind of go down, they said, release Jack and Diane. Jack and Diane goes to number one. Hurts So Good didn't come down. We had two singles in the top ten. Oh, wow. And that blew John Cougar Mellencamp yes. up. Yes. That launched my career. They're like, well, who's that drummer? And so it's a cool story. That song almost didn't make the record, and it became that. Wow. Pretty, well, that's that so cool. I love stories yeah. like that. Yeah, I, you know. So, dude, I was reading about this tattoo on your arm. I love the story behind that. You're obviously so spiritual or connected, and you're very centered, and there's something happening beyond touching, you know? And I love what I was reading about the meaning of the tattoo, the feather. And I, I had no idea that you had American Indian in you or Native American ancestors. And I, I love that whole story about your tattoo and the meaning of it. It's incredible. For some reason, growing up in Florida, too, I've always been like enamored with Native American history. And it's really odd. And then coming to Nashville and having a farm, I spend so much time finding like artifacts and stuff on my farm. I just, I'm really, really just intrigued by, by history, especially when it comes to Native American history. And 
but yeah, I got a bunch of random stuff all written all over me, but I, uh, it's interesting. Interesting. You bring that up for sure. How many tattoos do you have? Uh, I don't know. Uh, probably more than my mom's happy about. That's for sure. Well, when I got that on my arm and it says uncommon. Oh yeah. That's an, that's an A for Aronoff, but A really is for being the best. Number one. And Uncommon is, actually, I got the, that name when I read it. Remember Tony Dungy, the, cor, uh, the coach yeah, of the course. Indianapolis Colts? So Tony wrote a, a book a called book Uncommon. About yeah. his son, right? It's, about, it's called Uncommon, and right. his son's in it. But what he's saying is exactly what you are and what I am. Being Uncommon is being 100% you, because there's nobody, nobody on the planet like you or me or anybody. He was talking about how all these different stories, I won't get into it, of people that did things very different and unique and uncommon. And boy, did that resonate in me so much. I went, oh, when you're doing things different, when especially when you're a little kid and people are going and you're stepping out of the mold, people are going, what are you doing? And you start to feel like something's wrong with you. Tony made me, I, at this point, I already felt good, but he kind of solidified the idea of like, no, this is who I am. I'm a good person. This is what I do. This is what I want to do. And this is what I'm going to continue to do. When I feel something, as long as I'm not trying to hurt anybody, I'm doing it. Even if I'm standing all alone in the dark, yes. walking down that road, that's what I do. That's what uncommon is. And when I showed that to my mom, she went, what? Why did you ruin your arm? And then she looked at my other arm and went, are you going to do it to that <laughs> Like, no, I'm just, it's just this arm. But anyway, that tattoo means a lot to me. And, and it's, it is me. Yeah, man. And the moral of the story is that moms always are going to give you yeah. a little. <laughs> yeah. little well, they made, they made us. So they're going, to, hey, what did you do to that arm I made? You know? Right. <laughs> it was like amazing. Oh, man. So when you moved to Nashville, you moved to Nashville. Was that, what year did you move to Nashville? Did you already have your record deal? Or did you move when you were making your record in 2006? I moved up there uh, when I dropped out of college. I only had like 15 hours of school left at Florida State. And I just moved to Nashville on a whim. And uh, I was there for about a year here. I'm here in Nashville now. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I was here for about a year before I got my record deal. And then it's when I met you and it's kind of off the races from there. Dude, it's good job, man. So, okay. I feel like, I mean, you're only 42. You feel like an old soul. I mean, you got a lot. I mean, you got a lot of living to do. And I kind of know the answer. I was going to say, what haven't you done that you want to do? But I think there is so many things that you haven't done that you are going to do. And you don't even know what those things are yet. You're unstoppable. You're going to be uh -huh. unstoppable, undeniable. You're completely authentic. Those are the big three words. You're unstoppable because you're following the spirit, the person you are, which is such a positive light you're undeniably who you are and you're authentic i mean there's no bullshit you're just what you are and so you're going to be doing so many incredible things that's kind of you to say man i appreciate that kenny I, oh I, I i feel it i feel it i'm going to just continue to kind of uh enjoy life i think to answer somewhat of what you're asking um as a dad now you know of two girls and i've been real busy the last almost 20 years of touring that uh, my little girl, my older, she's 10 and my younger is four. And so they're just at this age where I want to 
I want to be, if anything that I want to be better at is, and I feel like I'm a pretty awesome dad now, but I'd like to be a better one and I'd like to be there more for them. And I've, like I mentioned to you earlier, I've started to realize how much stuff doesn't matter that I thought mattered before. And what matters the most is that time that I can spend with them. So I think if there's anything outside the career aspect of what I'm chasing, it's definitely that I want to. I want to maximize my time as a dad and and be there for them for sure. Cause I, I want them to always look back and know that I was more of a dad than I was this so-called Jake Owen figure. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's not your real name. You, you, what was your real name? Josh or something? Joshua. Oh yeah. My birth name is Joshua. My granddad's was Jake. He went by Jake. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. 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 Yeah. And Jake, Jake Owen is such a great stage name, you know, all American. <laughs> It worked. It's great. It worked. It definitely worked. Man, how tall are you? Are you 6'2"? Just right at it, actually. So you're the same height as Aaron Rodgers. So that's why they confused you? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're near it. Yeah, we, I, that was funny this year. <laughs> that was there, funny, man. Confused that... with Aaron. I, even the last few years I'm out there, everybody always kind of thinks that I'm Aaron Rodgers. But now that uh, he's cut his hair, maybe not so much. I thought when I read that, I went, oh, come on, man. Aaron Rodgers is like probably six eight. Jake Owens is six foot. No, yeah, he's not as tall as you think. No, but you know it's funny. Some like you look at Brady, and I I didn't think he was as tall as he is. He's super tall, Tom Brady. Yeah, I tell you, he's a big guy out there. Is Josh Allen? Are you a Bills fan? Being a didn't you grow up in Albany or something? Yeah, I, I was born in Albany. Oh yeah, Josh Allen's good. I'm an Indianapolis Colt, Indianapolis Colts, Colts fan because when right. I lived in that, in that quarterback. He's got. He's the biggest quarterback in the NFL. Two hundred forty-four pounds. He just big blew guy. his shoulder out. He's having surgery. They just said he won't be playing for the rest of the year. But I'm an Indy Colts fan because Jim Irsay became. He's a rock and roll super fan. Next thing you know, I'm on the plane with the Colts. I've been to eleven oh, Super wow. Bowls. I'm actually going to be in Nashville recording with him, November second and third. I'll give oh, you wow. a buzz. Yeah, now you can meet. Jim. He's great. He sends his jets to pick me up, and that's why. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a Colts fan, big time. Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <laughs> you know what I mean? I used to be able to stand on the side of the bench when, when that was allowed, right next wow. to like Jim Harborough or Manning, Marshall Falk. Marshall Falk. Oh my God! I mean, yeah. all these guys. I'd be. I remember Tony Saragusa, the big lineman. Oh yeah, he'd be in the. You know, there'd be that big pile up, and you go, "Yo, Kenny, what's up?" Right in the middle of the game. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> going, awesome. It was so cool. Oh dude. man, well, dude. Yeah, I'm grateful you had me on, man. I love catching up with you. It's been it's been a minute since I've seen you, and, and this is really refreshing to chat with you. It's been way too long, but you know, we're also so friggin' busy. And Jake, I'll give you a buzz. I'll text you if I've got any time. I think I'm. Recording at East Iris. You probably know where that is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, uh, if not, I'll just text you anyway, man. Yeah, man, love to catch you and see you. And uh, again, I appreciate you guys reaching out. And I'm glad that God. we can make this happen. Dude, this is bigger than the podcast. You're a very inspiring, incredible leadership type guy. I can't think of all the great words, but I want people to hear what you have to say because you have a lot to offer. And man, you're just getting started. So... Thanks. Jake, yeah. I will appreciate see- it, man. Oh, wow.